Likutei Sichais, Chelek Tezayin, Volume 16, Second Sicha for Parshas Kisisa. This is a Rashi Sicha in which we'll enjoy and revisit several klolim, several rules in Rashi which we've become acquainted with. However, this is not just merely a Rashi Sicha. We will also get to enjoy and have a glimpse into the Rebbe's style of learning when it comes to the various debates that we find throughout Shas, throughout the Talmud. In other words, this is called a Lishitase, meaning that it goes, quote, according to his point of view, which means basically the way it works is that we find throughout the Talmud various machlekesim between two prominent chachamim. Although they're in differing circumstances and in various scenarios with different halachas. However, when you examine it, it all boils down, it all comes back to their fundamental view and approach to halacha. And this is a very unique way in which the Rebbe taught us some of the famous machlekesim, for example, between Hillel and Shammai, and in this case, as we'll find, between Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yehuda. It's not a difficult sicha, just a little back and forth, but it can be understood even for somebody without experience in this style of learning. This is on the verse 22 in chapter 30. After the Torah describes all the details, the ingredients that were necessary for the Shem and Hamishcha, all the various spices that were used in the mix, the various scents that were used in the mix of the anointing oil, the Torah concludes with the final ingredient, which is Veshemen Zayis Hin. It tells us that you have to have olive oil in the amount of a hin. So Rashi quotes in the Divrei Hamaschim, Rashi quotes the word hin and explains. Number one, what is a hin? Twelve lugin. Twelve measures which are called a lug. Now, just for your information, a lug is the liquid measure of the equivalent of the volume of six eggs. Figure about 16, 17 ounces. So 12 times that amount. After Rashi says this, Rashi continues, and he says, And the sages of Israel disagreed on this. They debated this. Rabbi Meir says, what did they do with this oil? With this oil, they boiled or they stewed all the roots together with the oil. So Rabbi Yehuda says to him, behold, there's not even enough oil here to smear, to code all of those aforementioned spices, as they are enormous in amount when you look into the verse. Rather, argues Rabbi Yehuda, what was this oil used for? How did they go about using the oil in this process? So he says what they did is they soaked all the roots, all the spices in water. And once they soaked it in water, the spices filled up and absorbed as much as they can absorb. Then they took the oil and smeared it over all the spices. And once the oils absorbed the scent of the spices, then they removed the oils, and that's the oil that became now scented, and that's the oil that they used for the anointing of all the vessels in the Mishkan and the Mishkan itself. 
So the Rebbe asks, we need to understand. Rashi, normally when he introduces two different ideas on the same word, he actually introduces it in two separate Dibra Masals. He actually puts it under two separate headings as they are two different points, even it's on the same thing, but it's two different points. And over here, it's obviously two different things that Rashi is telling us. Number one, how much a hin is. And number two, how they went about using this hin of olive oil in the process of preparation of the Shemen Hamishcha. Here, however, Rashi puts it all together. Some other curious facts about this Rashi is the fact that Rashi introduces the two opinions by saying, quote, that the sages of Israel disagreed on this. Now, perhaps we can understand why he tells us they disagreed on it. Because, you see, whenever Rashi quotes two opinions, the rule is, the rule in Rashi is, that the opinion that he quotes first is usually the primary opinion, and the latter one is the secondary one. So perhaps what Rashi is trying to tell us that here they are of equal value. In other words, by saying that they disagree in this, what Rashi is really telling us is that they're both equally applicable and they both have equal, so to speak, uh, uh, priority when it comes to understanding the Pasuk. However, why does Rashi have to tell us that it's the Jewish sages who debated this? It's obvious. I mean, who else? are we referring to? Another thing, why is it that Rashi finds it necessary to name the debaters, to name the two Chachamim, Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Huda? We know the rule that the Rebbe always emphasizes in Rashi, whenever he gives us the name of the, of the person holding that opinion, it actually has an impact or it has a reason in the actual opinion that Rashi is telling us. And an even more curious fact is the fact that the way Rashi introduces the opinions of Rabbi Meir Rabbi Yehuda is not the, re- the way it appears in our Gemara, the Gemara that we use, namely the Gemara, the Talmud Bavli. Rather, this is of a more obscure source, which is the Talmud Yerushalmi. Why did Rashi prefer this, so to speak, secondary source over what typically is the common source for our purposes, namely the Talmud Bavli. Now the first question that we asked could perhaps be easily under, um, explained. The first question that we asked, why is it that Rashi introduces it all and explains it all under the same heading? Because perhaps we can suggest the following. Once Rashi tells us the amount, once Rashi tells us that there are 12 lug which we know is only 12 times of the amount of 16 or 17 ounces, one immediately realizes that this is a very small amount, especially comparing it to the enormous amount of all the spices that the Torah listed prior to telling us this final ingredient of the olive oil. Thus, one immediately has the question, how did they go about preparing it? How was this sufficient for the mix of all of it? And therefore, Rashi has no choice but to give us this debate, this machlikas between Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yehuda. However, by Rashi expla- introducing it as two equal opinions, as we've said, we're left with a dilemma. We're left with a question. Because it seems, or it would seem, that only according to Rabbi Yehuda's opinion, 
does the whole thing make sense? That means only according to Rabbi Huda's opinion, that the oil that was used never became diluted, not even when it was absorbing the scent from the roots, were you left with a somewhat sufficient amount to be able to at least, you know, push it and at least at somewhat uh, have a, 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 a enough to anoint everything, albeit, you know, just a drop on each vessel, a drop on each part of the Mishkan. But according to Rameer's opinion, it doesn't really seem to answer the question. It doesn't really seem to take care of business and explain to us how is it that such a small amount, after becoming absorbed in all of the spices, how could it still remain sufficient enough to be able to serve as anointing oil for all of the, all of the vessels of the Mishkan and the Mishkan itself? And yet, Rashi brings it as equal opinions Rashi introduces it as both being valid and viable opinions in understanding how this oil was used. So what is the explanation of all this? Says the Rebbe as follows. Rabbi Meir, he holds that what they did was they took all of the aforementioned ingredients, all of the various spices, in all of their enormous amount, mixed it together with the oil and boiled them and cooked them together or perhaps stewed them to the point that they perhaps turned into a puree. Thus, although the result wasn't pure oil that is scented, rather a whole concoction, a whole mixture that became pureed and is of oily texture, now... It's obvious that you have a more than sufficient amount in order to be able to cover all of the vessels of the Mishkan. Whereas Rabbi Yehuda disagrees, and that's the argument that he makes. Because Rabbi Yehuda obviously holds that no, you couldn't turn this all into one concoction. Rather, those spices were there just to give off a scent, but the oil had to remain in its integrity. The oil had to remain in its original state as oil. And that's when it was meant to be used in order to anoint the vessels of the Mishkan and the Mishkan itself. As the Torah clearly states at the end of the verse, and it refers to it as Shemen Mishchas Kodesh. It has to be an oil of holy anointment, meaning that it has to remain oil in its integrity. What is behind this dispute? What is the Lishitase in this Machlikis between Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yehuda? So, the Rebbe explains that if you look at the verse, the verse that says what needs to be done with the quote-unquote ladder. What was the ladder? The last thing mentioned was vishemen zayis hin, an olive oil in the amount of a hin. So what does the verse say? It says, You should make it into a whole, holy anointing oil. How so? How do you do it? Says the Pasuk. You should make it a blend of mixture in a work of a spice blender. And then it concludes, It should be a sacred anointing oil, shall it be. If you break it down, what do we have here? That there are, so to speak, two stages. There are two parts to this instruction. The first part is to turn it into a blend, 
to make it into a real absolute blend. The second part is that the result of it should be Shemen Mishchas Kodesh, an anointing oil, a holy anointing oil. Thus, the basis of the Machlekes between Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yehuda. According to Rabbi Meir, our main focus, our main emphasis, the main priority is on the first part, where it says, you shall make it a mirkachas, you should make it a full and absolute blend. In, order, in other words, this is what has to be implemented to the fullest, although this will compromise somewhat the second part, the end result, because once you do this, according to the way Rabbi Meir suggests we do it, by making it a full and absolute blend, without compromise, you are compromising the fact that it will no longer be a pure oil, it will now be an entire concoction which is oily. Whereas according to Rabbi Yehuda, the emphasis is on the latter part. The emphasis is on the second part of the verse, the second part of the instruction, which is that the Torah tells us it should all end up, the end result should be that it should be a pure, holy, anointing oil. In order to fulfill that, in order to accomplish that, one has to somewhat compromise, so to speak, on the first phase of the instruction, which is what? Turning this into a mixture. So while therefore Rabbi Yehuda suggests, how do you turn this into a mixture without compromising the end result? Therefore he says, what you do is you have the spices absorb liquids to their fullest. They can no longer absorb anything. Then you smear it with the, with the uh, oil, and therefore the oil will never become diluted, the oil will never become lost. Now, why does Rashi um, present it as we stated above? Why does he present it as equal, uh, a, a, an equal way of understanding the Pasuk? Because from the Pasuk itself, there's no clear indication which of these two phases of the instruction is the primary one. Which of these two phases is the priority? And therefore, Rashi, according to Pshute Shemikra, has no choice but to tell us that there is a disagreement, there's a dispute in exactly how they went about doing this. In other words, both ways have validity. Both ways could be, you know, uh, they have like, they're equal options to understanding the Pasuk. Now we can better uh, appreciate why Rashi, when introducing this machlekes, introducing this agreement, why Rashi said, the Jewish sages, which was obvious. I mean, it's obviously the Jewish sages. Because as Rashi is trying to tell us is that there's something deeper here. There's something more fundamental. This is not just another machlekes. Rather, this is this machlekes between Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yehuda is actually reflected. I'm mean, sorry, it reflects their fundamental view in how one's approach to the performance of a mitzvah should be, and therefore he calls them chachmi Yisrael, as in the Jewish thinkers, because this machlekes is not just an isolated machlekes. Rather, this applies to all other matters, to many, many other matters of performance of the mitzvah, if we find out, we boil it down, we determine what is behind, what is the basis of this machlekes. And this machlekes 
this this agreement between Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yehuda basically boils down to what is the ultimate priority in the approach to the performance of a mitzvah. Sometimes when we come to perform a mitzvah, there is a difference between the current and what the end result will be. Meaning, if you focus in on what is right now and doing it to its fullest and to the best, it might in some way compromise a latter part of the mitzvah or affect a performance of a later part of this mitzvah or another mitzvah. And the question is, do I take that into account now? Do I become concerned right here, right now, in the current, in the present, and worry about what will be later, and therefore perhaps compromise the performance of the mitzvah now? Or do I say no? Right now, I have to perform the mitzvah to its fullest, even though it will be at the price of perhaps a resulting compromise in the end, in the integrity of the mitzvah at the very end. Just a small example, which may not be the perfect example, but let, it's brought down actually, it's debated in some of the Jewish, uh, some of the Jewish thinkers. What happens if somebody knows on Sam Gedalia that he has to fast, but he knows that if he fasts today, it may perhaps impact him to the extent that he'll have a difficulty fasting on Yom Kippur. Now, we're not going to go into the discussion whether they're on the same level or not. This is a rabbinic fast. This is a biblical fast. But the idea is that they're both a mitzvah. He has a mitzvah to fast on Sun Gedalia, and he has a mitzvah to fast seven days later on Yom Kippur. The question is now, on Sun Gedalia, does he concern himself with what's going to be later in seven days, and therefore, maybe perhaps not fast or compromise on the fast now? Or do you say, no, right now I have a mitzvah to fast. Right now it's Sangedalia. And therefore, I am going to fast now, even though perhaps later on Yom Kippur, I am not going to be able to fast. I'm going to have a difficulty performing that mitzvah because of this mitzvah that I'm performing now. Rabbi Meir says, the emphasis is on the current. And we see it here in our Machlekes. He says, now this part of the Pasuk, the first phase of the instructions, the Torah says that you should make it into a Rekach Merkachas Maserikach. You should make it into a full and absolute blend, a mixture, a spice mixture, a spice blend. And the blend is what? Not only the spices, but all of the ingredients that were mentioned above, including the ingredient of olive oil. Therefore, you have to mix it together. Although this will compromise the latter part of the verse, the second phase of the instruction, which is that it should be a shemen, it should be an oil of an, a holy anointing oil. Whereas Rabbi Yehuda holds no. Even though you have a, an obligation to perform this phase of the mitzvah, but while performing this phase of the mitzvah, you must take into account not only the present, but also the future, what the result of it will be. And therefore, you have to somewhat compromise on the manner in which you perform this mixture that you're making with the oil. So you do it in such a way that, yes, it's a mixture, but it's not the ultimate mixture. And now we can better understand why Rashi identifies the two opinions by name, why he identifies the rabbis who hold these two opinions. Because this is not just a matter, this is not just a, a disagreement here in this particular mitzvah of, 
of, uh, of making the Shemen Mishchas Kodesh, of making the anointing oil. But rather, the basis of their Machlekes applies to many, many other mitzvahs and many of their other Machlekes and many of their other disagreements, some of which were already quoted by Rashi previously in prior parashiyas that we have already learned that he quoted Rameh Rabbi Yehuda. And when you analyze them closely, you will come back to this very root point, this fundamental difference of view and opinion on do you A, look at the current, irregardless of what the result will be, or do you look at the result and therefore you compromise the current? Now I have to tell you that this sicha, we're only at, this, is, this concludes chapter 7. There's another three chapters in which the Rebbe brings another two examples. He introduces another two examples where on the surface, the machlekes between Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yehuda doesn't seem to have anything to do with this. And the Rebbe very masterfully points out and brings out how it all comes back to this very point. However, because of time constraints, time, time space and lack thereof, I will not be going into it in detail. However, I do encourage you and strongly suggest that you do learn it inside as it is very, very stimulating. But I think the point we've gotten, the point that the, the, the machlikas between Rameir Rabbi Yehuda and how it expresses itself here is basically, do you look at the current? Do you look at the present when performing the mitzvah? Or do you look at what the end result will be? That basically wraps up the... The, the, this Rashi Sikha and it gives us a good explanation as to why Rashi presented it the way he did.